The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 27th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Commonwealth just got much less wealthy. The pound got pounded. The shadow cabinet is just that of its former self. After Britain voted to leave the EU, Prime Minister David Cameron announced he was stepping down. And they didn't even have the dignity to give Samantha Cameron a podium for her protection. Did you see the shots of that news conference outside 10 Downing Street? Cameron there, his wife by his side. But actually, if you see the right angle, she wasn't by his side. She was several feet away, quite a distance. And there she held her right arm by her side and her left arm had squirmed its way around her back and grasped her right elbow. She was playing the role of a political spouse. He had that solid wood lectern adorned by the seal of state. Her only armor was a crisp dress, preen by Thornton Bergazzi, as it was, cinched at the waist. And today, in Parliament, David Cameron reiterated his decision. But the reason for my decision to resign is that the country has made a very clear decision to go in a particular direction. And I really do believe it needs someone, uh, fresh leadership, fresh pair of eyes, uh, committed to that path and to getting it right for Britain. And I think that does require change. And that's why I made the decision I did. And I've certainly not changed my mind. But at least the majority party has clear winners, like Boris Johnson. The opposition party is a shambles. As of this taping, over 20 members of the Labour Party have resigned their positions in what they call the shadow cabinet. Yes, I know. What will we ever do without the shadow secretary of state for culture, media, and sport? I mean, someone's got to keep the daylight secretary of state for culture, media, and sport honest. But think about this. Britain has three parties in Parliament with more than 10 seats. All of those parties backed Remain. Of the 650 seats in Parliament, 480 MPs backed Remain. The equivalent in our House of Representatives would be 322 members favoring a policy and 113 opposing it. When you have 322 members of the House of Representatives in agreement, just by dint of sheer numbers and how hard it is to get that many people agree, it's usually a decent idea. 113 is usually a bad idea. Like the omnibus spending bill this year passed 316 to 113. This is the kind of bill that needs to pass or else the United States is plunged into chaos. When you're opposed by 27% of elected officials, I mean, that alone doesn't mean it's a disqualifying idea, yet it is an indication that it's a really, really unpopular idea. You could always cobble together a chaos coalition of 27%. So there in Britain, the head of government, the opposition either falling on their sword or seeing it dangling above their head, even if Britain had decided to stay in the EU, if the country were experiencing this degree of political turmoil, like let's say twin sex and bribery scandals swept through the conservative and labor party, there would be tremendous upheaval and uncertainty and the markets would not know how to react. Now let's caveat everything that's going on with the markets. I have fallen into the trap of saying Brexit, see, see, told you, look at what the markets are doing. But I think it's wrong to take the markets as their own sort of referendum. One reason the markets are dropping so much is that they were so wrong before the Brexit. And yes, we could note that all these economists are saying a British recession just got a lot more likely. I mean, Goldman Sachs going so far as to say that a British economist is likely. That is their forecast. But if we're talking about predicting, the reason we're in such a big sell-off is all the predictions got it wrong before the Brexit vote. 
And at some point, you've got to concede that no matter what the fundamental underlying macroeconomics are, the markets extract their own gravitational pull. I guess I could forgive the markets for being wrong. I was a little wrong. And it's, of course, easier to predict economic contraction like a recession than to predict how a laborer in Sheffield might be thinking in advance of a vote. Luckily, I have tape of a laborer in Sheffield and what he was thinking. The Labour Party have walked away from the people. The people aren't walking away from the Labour Party. The Labour Party have walked away from the people. That's the problem. Thanks to the BBC for that. The Brexit is, to put it simply, the most calamitous international news story not resulting in loss of life that I can think of. And the entire show is dedicated to it today. In the spiel, the value and cost of a creed de corps. But first, Ed Luce of Foreign Policy and the Financial Times to assess what went wrong. So what went wrong? Sure, it was David Cameron's folly to call the vote. But there's always been a large Eurosceptic faction within the conservative party. The fault seems to be within labor. The working class, longtime labor party voters from Sheffield to Sunderland who voted to leave the EU. Christopher Caldwell and the Weekly Standard had this great construction. Remain seemed to be a coalition of those who owned second homes and those for whom English was a second language. Why? Well, it's been put on the connection to voters. Listen to voters, we're told. Here's Daily Mail columnist Peter Oborn on Week in Westminster, the BBC program. Oborn's a bit of a bomb thrower and he throws one right at Labour. You hate your voters. You're going to go and join us. You really loathe your voters. It was was about a disregard of working people. Blair just took for granted working class voters. He put them in a box and said, I don't want to hear what you think. By the way, we think you're smelly and disgusting. But we don't we don't want to hear what you think. Ed Luce is the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us again, Ed. Maybe thanks for having me, Mike. Ed, so we've heard a message was sent to the elites. The elites are not to be trusted. Uh, labor wasn't listening to their voters. But what were the voters saying in terms of policy or were the voters just saying we're frustrated, make it better? Uh, a little bit of the well, quite a lot of the latter. Um, I mean, I think if you were to transpose the Brexit vote onto the American scene, it's a bit like imagining all of Trump's supporters added to all of Bernie Sanders' supporters and voting together on one issue and getting a narrow majority. Um, and of course, that coalition includes a multitude of sins, you know, ranging from anti-trade to xenophobic to, um, you know, other sentiments that, you know, wouldn't fit those two. Um, There's one thing, I guess, that united all of them was a strong protest of vote against business as usual. Um, I think some of them might be uh, feeling buyer's remorse now. Uh, There's evidence that there were quite a few voters who really were recording a protest vote in the expectation which they shared with the financial markets that um, Remain would win. Yes, and not understanding exactly what it would mean to a vote leave and actually leave. Although I wonder, 
To what degree did Boris Johnson and Michael Gove think out, oh, what does Article 50 mean and when are we going to enact this and how exactly does it work? I mean, I've heard the leave camp be likened to the dog who caught the fire truck. What do you think? I think it's a very good analogy, and the answer to it, I think, almost certainly is they didn't think it out. Um, there's absolutely no Brexit game plan. They've been remarkably candid in admitting they had no plan for what would happen um, if they won. But both um, girls, you know, who talked about Britain being fed up with experts, and Boris Johnson operated a sort of textbook post-truth, post-fact politics campaign. And so... We perhaps shouldn't be surprised if they're absolutely clueless about what happens now, um, as clueless as the rest of us, having, uh, having surprisingly won it. But I want to look at each of the parties, and I want to first start with Labour because I have something to say about the Conservative Party. But Labour, was there a policy they could have enacted that would show it was listening to voters? Was there a policy, a set of policy proposals, a law that they voted against, they could have voted for? Or is it just tone? Or is it just they're from the upper classes and many of their voters aren't? You know, how tangible is the not listening or the elites being out of touch when we're talking about the elites in the Labour Party specifically? Uh, well, it's a very good question. Uh, according to an opinion poll I've seen, the majority of Labour voters did not know what Labour's position on this subject was. And of course, Labour's formal position was to support Remain. Um, but Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, possibly soon to be ex-Labour leader, um, uh, was so half-hearted uh, and passive-aggressive in the way uh, that he campaigned for Remain that the message simply got lost. He drove through the campaign, as one person put it, with the handbrake on. Yeah. Now, I want to get to the Conservative Party. Obviously, Cameron can be blamed for calling the vote in the first place. He's a gambler. He lost that bet. But can't a case be made that Cameron and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Osborne, can a case be made that they're fundamentally to blame for the entire atmosphere because of their austerity measures, which didn't have a salubrious effect. To the contrary, it created a situation of unemployment and stagnant wages. And that was the main fault of the conservative party. They set up the economic conditions that made everyone so disaffected. I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, there's, there've been um, really inequitable and unfair austerity measures imposed unequally across the board, and they tend to have hit uh, younger working people. Um, and so that's going to create a mood of disaffection. I think, though, that they're even more culpable in the sense that they have spent years railing against the European Union and against immigration in an attempt to sort of see off their right flank in, in, the, to U, in UKIP and in the right of the Conservative Party. So when Cameron and Osborne then turned round earlier this year to campaign for Remain, they lacked any credibility in selling to British voters a European Union that they had been habitually denigrating. So I think on many counts they're culpable. And I think the last count on which um, Cameron in particular is culpable is calling a referendum on a massive constitutional question about Britain's future in which there was just a simple 50% majority threshold required to produce a result. That's not what most serious countries would do. 
Hmm. Last time we spoke, we spoke of the similarity between the Trump voter and the leave camp, the uh, downwardly mobile non-university graduates, white working class. And I think that every, mostly everything you could say about that voter in Britain, you could say about that voter in America, how angry they are at the elites and how the economy is not working out for the non-college graduate white person. But I think the big difference isn't that voter, uh, why a Brexit type result i.e. the election of Trump might not happen here, is simply that in the U.S., white people are 62%. In the U.K., they're 87%. And for all we want to talk about how the politicians and elites appeal to the disaffected Tea Party type person, I think that statistic is more important than anything else. Yes, I think that's right. The, the, the demography is different here. Um, uh, you know, the United States is is probably a generation ahead of, of Britain in terms of its diversity, in the same way that California is a generation ahead of the United States. Um, so I, I don't think people should be unduly alarmed that the pro-Brexit vote will necessarily lead to an improbable Trump victory in November. That having been said... Um, I do share the very widespread view, and I've written about it myself since last Thursday, that it, there are lessons here Hillary Clinton should draw about the mistakes the Remain campaign made. And the principal mistake they made was to bet the farm, bet the ranch, really, on Project Fear, that they could scare voters into voting for Remain, as opposed to making a positive case um, for voting for Remain. And Hillary Clinton, there are some, um, some, some, some real similarities there between the way she is quite understandably stoking up fear about what would happen if Trump were elected and how Remain conducted their disastrous campaign. Yes, on the one that's true. She does say I'm more optimistic about America, and it's she'll quote Donald Trump as saying how America's great days are behind it, and she says that's not true. I believe in America. Yet her main, the main point of what she says is to say that Trump is temperamentally disqualified for the job, and that's talking down Trump, and that is a bit of fearful fear mongering, even if it seems kind of plausible with Trump. It's totally understandable and plausible, but I do think that if you represent the status quo and, you know, polls show that the majority of Americans are in one form or another unhappy about the status quo and pessimistic about what the status quo will look like for their children, then it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a risk to campaign uh, essentially on the basis of let's not upset the status quo. And of course, that's, she's saying other things. But uh, essentially, that's the core of her campaign. And the last question I want to ask you, it's somewhat of an impossible question, but you talked about we're in this post-factual period. Do you, so Remain had the better arguments. They had more arguments. They had more experts, better experts. They lost. Is there something about gaining knowledge that makes an arguer lose persuasiveness, do you think? I think it's a class signifier. I mean, I think it depends how you put your facts. Now, I can imagine very well Bill Clinton saying everything that experts, inverted commas, say and being heard by people who hate experts and understood and agreed with. I think it's how you, you know, the idiom you use, the tone you use. And I think, you know, having people like Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, and, you know, senior economists from around the world telling the British in very technical terms um, that um, they should eat their spinach and, and be thankful for it um, was tonally probably wrong. This is as much about sort of social feeling 
uh, as about anything else. And um, there's definitely a, a parallel there with, with um, how Americans receive people they think are talking down to them. Yes. And you could say, wait, didn't Boris Johnson argue maybe without as good an argument, but in that same high minded style, but it's not the same when you're arguing on the leave side. In fact, they probably glom on to a more high minded argument to legitimize them. And, you know, Boris has got um, self-mockery, that sort of British self-deprecation, tousled hair, you know, just got out of bed look, down to a T. And so, you know, all the normal sort of signals that you would get from somebody who went to Eton and Oxford and, you know, was a columnist for the Daily Telegraph, um, he manages to sort of invert and turn into a bit of a joke um, and therefore appear approachable and human. I mean, it's, uh, it's a clever act, is, is, is all I can say, but it's, um, uh, it's, it's not a laughing matter now. Yeah, it is about tone and it is about feelings, but ultimately it's uh, about having lost about $4 trillion in worldwide wealth over the last two days also. Yes, and, and turning, you know, what was expected to be um, forecasts of between uh, 1% and 2% economic growth um, in 2017 have changed in the last 96 hours into a contraction of 1%. So all the goodies that Boris was promising and UKIP were promising, all the spending on national health, that's, that's going to evaporate if it was ever there in the first place. Ed Luce is the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and a columnist based in Washington, D.C. He also contributes to foreign policy and is frequently a member of the Foreign Policy Editor's Roundtable podcast, which I recommend. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much, Mike. And now the spiel. Take that, elites and my own eye. In January 2011, government officials in Tunisia's 13th largest province harassed a street vendor for a bribe that he could not afford. It's probably mere pennies. But there is a direct line from that event to over $2 trillion in losses in Friday's trading and nearly $2 trillion today. Street vendor immolates himself. Arab Spring is touched off. It spreads throughout the region. Syria is destabilized. An uprising occurs. Refugees spread throughout Europe. Britain is asked to deal with that. Uncertainty, political turmoil, economic decline, a Brexit vote. And that is what is so scary about the interconnectedness of the world. One aggrieved Tunisian fruit vendor is tinier, far tinier than Little England. You cannot retreat. And yet the English have, or they are trying to. Some are calling it their Independence Day. Michael Gove, conservative MP, likened Brexit to the example of, quote, the Americans who declared their independence and never looked back and, quote, became an exemplar of what an inclusive, open, and innovative democracy can achieve. I forget, did the FTSE lose 5% after the Battle of Bunker Hill? But such patriotic talk has infected not just Boris Johnson, the confusingly quaffed one-time mayor of Britain's largest city. It migrated across the sea to infect the confusingly quaffed one-time mayor of America's largest city. And I think the British people made a very, very heroic stand with a tremendous effort against it. Rudy Giuliani. This is really a major uh, setback for the whole 
Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Kerry internationalist view of the world. That every nation is the same. Uh, America is nothing special about America. We should all have an international view of everything. Rudy Giuliani reading into the decision a parallel to American anti-internationalism. And he and Laura Ingram and John Bolton and all manner of conservative commentators saying this was a blow against elites. Donald Trump championed the Brexit as a blow against the condescending elites. The British Brexiteers echoed the words of Donald Trump. They called it a blow against the condescending elites. But when you asked a Brexiteer about Donald Trump's endorsement, well, here's what Michael Gove said. And also, I think it is wrong of you to say that people who want our democracy restored and who believe that Britain should be a self-governing nation are people following in the footsteps of Donald Trump. It is that sort of sneering condescension towards people who believe in democracy that discredits those on the Remain side of the campaign. The British working class, as is the case with the American working class, we're told, have been abandoned by the elites. And what's left is this statement vote, this catharsis, this cri de cœur. Well, cri de cœur is a French phrase, cry from the heart, possibly it's not apt. Although, as heard on the BBC, possibly it's quite apt as caught in the throat of this English veteran who voted for leave. I cannot think of anything more that I've been... Our soldiers, sailors and airmen should fight and die. It should be ruled by Germany. I've got my country back. I'm not going to be here a lot longer. I'm nearly 80. But what I've got, I want to keep. So members of the white working class feel abandoned by the party that should serve them. But the problem with that is that the party that should serve them was serving them when they made policy demands that were enacted that wound up hurting them, namely diminishing the safety net. Here in America, this is especially true of the white working class. When times are rough, they would like unemployment benefits. They would like job programs. They would like a hand up. They would for themselves, for their families, for the people they know. But they are dead set against their hard-earned tax dollars going to government programs for the poor. Wait a minute. Aren't they poor? Well, we're talking about a different kind of poor, the undeserving poor. And this is why I believe that labor and Democrats lost the working class. The working class had a resentment of people who weren't like them, possibly benefiting from programs that they funded. So Blair Democrats, Clinton Democrats acted on the wishes of their voters. That's what good parties do. And they enacted welfare reform and the English version of such. And now these programs aren't there. They're not there for the white voters who saw the ground slip from under them in the period between voting for welfare reform, 1996, and today. The white voters shrunk the safety net until it became a noose for them. These are the tools that government has. Wealth redistribution via the tax code, massive retraining initiatives, 
a safety net. These are really the only ways that government can provide for the casualties of the modern economy. Government could create a tone for innovation. They've done that. We have been innovating. That's why we have haves and have nots. The haves are the people who have benefited from government's programs saying, let's let entrepreneurs flourish. The have nots are the people who've been hurt by the fact that while entrepreneurs are flourishing, we didn't set enough aside for the possibility that their factory job would be lost. So what do we make of this striking out against elites? What did the elites do wrong? Did they disregard their voters? Did they not listen to their voters? I say they did listen. 20 years ago, they listened, and now the voters are shouting mad. And if they're not listening to voters now, it's not a question of voters saying, we want a set of policies. What they're really saying is, we want a set of conditions. This is so often true when you poll about policies. The answers seem to be about policies, but they're really about results. And the results of the modern economy are not good for enough people. And the frustration is palpable. And the EU is so uncuddly, and the economy is so complex. The world has so many entanglements and interconnections and, yes, complications. And there is an anxiety-alleviating sigh of relief with a leave vote. Yes, leave. Leave it all behind. Leave these issues. Leave this turmoil. Leave these complications behind. Like the self-cutter who disassociates before the slice and then allows the euphoric rush of endorphins to get him through the moment. There's that release. But then afterwards, there's bleeding and soon the scars. And that's it for today's show. And I want to tell you about another show. It's a live show. It's this Wednesday at 7.30 at a venue called Roulette in Brooklyn, where I speak to you from right now, where I live if you're in Brooklyn and want to go to Tape Fest, a live show with other performers and myself, check it out June 29th. That's Wednesday at Roulette at 7.30. Just producer Mary Wilson was gutted by the Brexit. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, was nattered from monitoring it 24-7, or as they possibly say, 724. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, thought it all a damp squib. The gist, continuously gobsmacked by the cock-up. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.